Friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our text this morning is verses 9 through 18, but this is a part due of uh, a little section on suffering, so I think it's good that you have context. So we are going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 18. Hear are these words. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now our text for this morning. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun shines with his scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is has conceived, gives birth to to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or sh- shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first roots of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis is most famous in the world of children and and adults for a, a set of books entitled what? Chronicles of Narnia. If you have ever not if you have never read that series of books don't just read the lion witch in the wardrobe as good as it may be read the entire thing but c.s lewis is also really well known for a book entitled mere christianity mere christianity if you're looking for another great book to be reading for your devotional life your your personal spiritual growth grab mere christianity 
In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives a really helpful illustration about our Christian life. Imagine, in this, he gives this illustration, imagine that we are a fleet of ships sailing in formation to a particular destination. A fleet of ships. Now, if that fleet is going to arrive safely without any kind of mishap, C.S. Lewis says three things must happen. First, the individual ships must be seaworthy. If the whole uh, armada is going to make it to port, to its destination, each individual ship has got to be seaworthy. Their insides must be good and tarred. They've got to be making sure that no water seeps in whatsoever. They've got to be in good working order so they actually float, so that they can steer well. And they've got to have the proper motive and the, the gear to actually make the journey. Secondly, they must be aware of all the other boats that are surrounding them. In other words, the ship in the middle of the armada cannot make a decision, I'm going to turn right. Because what is he going to do? He is going to plow through and take down every other ship in its way. He's got to be aware of all the other boats so that they don't bump into each other and cause harm to themselves and others. Thirdly, they must have some idea, some notion of where are we going? Where are we going? Why, why they are afloat in the very first place. It will be no use if, after a really good journey through the ocean, that they end up in Calcutta when they were supposed to end up in New York. They've got to know where they are going. So first, you can... The, the first of these we could use to describe our individual morality, our virtues, our vices, our character building, which we don't hear much really in this, our modern uh, ethical philosophies of the day. That your values, your morals, what holds you together, your inner man really matters. We, we have got to keep ourselves ship shape, if you will, for this journey. Secondly, when it comes to being aware of all the other ships, we could call those, if you will, social ethics. How we get along with one another and help rather than hinder other people along this journey called life. And thirdly, the third issue is, why are we here after all? Why, where are we supposed to be going? That's really the question of our age, isn't it? Where, why, why am I here in the first place? What is my purpose in this life? Where, how do I end up? Am I just here today, gone tomorrow? Or is there more depth and meaning and purpose to my life? For morality to be of any use, there must be a point to it all, right? We've got to know our destination, our purpose, our end game. And the reality is, Christianity, a life in Christ, rightly understood, provides the answers to all these questions. 
It gives us a clear guidance as to how we are to keep ourselves in good working order. The book of James wants to help us to live out our life in Christ in an ever-watching world. How do we live today? Remember last week I used Matthew chapter 5 in the same way. Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good works. They will see it and they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. James helps us to understand who am I? What does it mean to be shipworthy? How do I look around at my brothers and sisters in Christ and not ram through them, but work together for this mission? And where am I? Where are we going? As a, as a former teacher and as a former camp counselor and as a husband to an the executive director of camp, I hear every year, and I have even experienced myself, a yearly requirement for myself and for the camp, and it is to undertake a CPR class. Laura loves them. She loves them with all her heart. And it, but it is a course taken for liability purposes, right? Nobody, there is not one person who is saying, I want to take this class because I want to do this. There's not a person who says, I can't wait for somebody whose heart stops. I can't wait. We, nobody wants to take this, on this skill and never use it. We, we hope to never use it, right? There's this, man, I'll take this, but for the love of God, keep breathing, kids. Please keep breathing. Don't let that heart stop. Nobody wants to be in that position. But we also know that we may need it someday. And that time, the time to prepare is always now, not tomorrow, because tomorrow may be too late. We don't want to wait till we're in the middle of the crisis to say, hold on a second. Can you, can you just hold on? I need about an hour and a half, maybe two hours for a refresher course on CPR. Are you going to be okay? I know you're turning blue, but hold on a second. Let me pull out my manual and remember. In the same way, James is doing what? He is offering a course for us. He's a course that we should really take if we haven't already done so already. And the course is called How to Suffer. How to Suffer. And we can even almost subtitle the course as make sure you know what to do. Nobody wants to suffer, right? Raise your hand. Anybody want uh, Sign me up. Nobody wants to suffer. We hope that we never need to apply the lessons that we learn from the book of James, but we know that we will need it one day. And the time to prepare is not tomorrow. The time to prepare is today. Now, when we're in the, even when we're in the middle of suffering, we need to know, how do I suffer? How do I respond? Unlike CPR, it is guaranteed that we will need this training. Everyone, everyone in this room here will suffer. In fact, 
Everybody here has already suffered in one way or another. And some of you are going through a period of suffering right now, right? You're going, this, this is hard. This is difficult. This sucks. Get me out. Beam me up, Scotty, if you will, right? Get me out of this. And if you're not suffering right now, don't worry. We're not leaving you out. Suffering is coming your way. It's a promise. It is inevitable. To be human in this broken world means that suffering is simply just a part and parcel of your life. That is what happens. Nobody gets off this planet without any kind of suffering. So we need to learn how do we deal with suffering. And the best time to prepare is when we're not suffering. But it is never too late to learn now. Last week, if you were here, and by the way, if you were not here, I always want to encourage you, go back to the website, catch up. We do things sequentially. We walk through whole books in, a, in an order. Listen to the podcast on your way to work. Listen to what we've talked about before. So when, last week we started the book and we began to look at this book of James. And right off the bat, what does, what does James do? He does not uh, kind of prance around and tell you a little story here and a heartwarming one right there. What does he do? He says, hey, let's talk about suffering. He told us that when we suffer, not if, when we suffer, we need to consider, we need to think about how to find joy. Consider, consider joy. And, and by remembering the benefits of suffering. But also remembering God's help. He's there to hold you up in the midst of it. But James is not done yet. In today's passage, he continues to teach us about suffering. And today he's going to give us one thing not to do and two things to do instead. So let's start by looking, learning about what James has to say about suffering. And let's start off with the one thing that he says not to do. When suffering, James says, do not, do not blame God. I don't know what your DNA is like, but I'm sure you're very much like me. When trouble comes, when it's hitting the fan, the pressure is increasing, the first thing that you want to do is start pointing fingers, right? Well, you know why this is happening? It's because so-and-so did this. They said this, they said that. And even in the midst of our suffering, one of the biggest temptations that we face in the middle of suffering is to point a finger somewhere. And all too often, one of the things that we do when we are looking to blame is we look up and we want to blame God. We've probably all done it one time or another. And James tells us, avoid this mistake. Look at what he says in verse 13, would you? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So when you are, to understand this, 
understand what James is saying, we've got to understand a couple different terms that he is using here. One of the terms that he uses frequently is this word trials. It's what James has been talking so far about in this passage. A trial is a hardship that we face or some form of suffering in our life. It might be the death of a a very near one. It might be the loss of a job. It might be evicted, being evicted from your home. It might be some relational challenges that are going on. It might be a wayward son or a wayward daughter. It might be feeling empty and relationshipless because you don't have, you feel like you don't have somebody around you. And those are trials. But there's another term that James uses in this passage, and it's the word temptation. Trials and temptations are not the same things. It's the, the, you don't kind of just let it roll off the tongue. Oh, trials and temptations. This is the one of my trials and temptations. It doesn't roll off that way. But hear this. Trials often lead to temptations many times when we go through our suffering we see that trial as a temptation as as an occasion to start doubting god's goodness and god's care for us trials aren't the same as temptations but they can lead to temptations to begin that blame process that blaming of god so What does James do? He says, listen, I want to warn you against this this danger. He gives us this rock-solid truth that we need to cling to when we are feeling this temptation. He says, listen, God is not the source of your temptation. He's not. He's not the source. Sometimes we think that God is up there just kind of, you know, throwing obstacles in our way, just waiting for us to fail and to fall on our face. That's a distorted picture of God. James assures us that it is never God's intent to tempt us so that we will fail. God may allow us to go through trials. Trust me. There are circumstances in your life and in my life where I have failed before and I am going through, because of choices I made, I am going to go through a trial. And you know what? There's consequences. Hear that. There are consequences to the choices that we make in this life. But God isn't going, oh, I busted you. Got you this time. No, that's, that's not how it works. James assures us that it is never God's intent to tempt us so that we fail god may allow us to go through these things all the times he may even allow us to be tempted after all he he is sovereign but he is not the source of that temptation god after all himself cannot be tempted So why would he ever be interested in tempting us? His purpose for us is not that we would fail, but that we would grow through it. We can turn to God when we're tempted, knowing that he is not the cause of it. So if God is not the source of our temptations, What is the source? 
It's really easy, right, to go, well, if it's not God, it must be the devil, right? It's, it's easy. It's either A or B. But what does James do? He leaves no room for misunderstanding, does he? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, what does it say? His own desire. Dang it! Right? You're going, I was hoping it was the devil. If it's not God, it's got to be something else. and It's got to be the devil. And, and James said, no, 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 no. Easy. You know, you get that, remember as a kid, pointing fingers? Well, got one finger pointing at, oh shoot, I got three pointing back at me. The reality is, it is you. That desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth, give me that word, what does it say? No, no, no. When, des- when desire has, has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth, yikes! Sin brings forth death. So what is the source of our temptations? Me, myself, and I. You, yourself, and you. You are the source. In particular, our own desires. The word that he uses for desire gives us a rich insight to the very nature of sin itself. The word means something that we desire too much. Not just desire, but desire too much. We could say it. sin means to over-desire. As Tim Keller states, he says this, the main problem our hearts has is not so much desires for bad things but our over desire for good things let that sink in for a little bit the main problem our heart has is not so much desires for bad things but our over-desire for good things. Our longings. Not just for bad things, but also for good things. Relationships, right? Man, my desire for relationships could take me down a thousand different rabbit trails, down into a hole that is darker than dark. It could lead to sexual immorality. It could lead to compromise. It could lead to blindness. And it could eventually lead to my own death. My, my desire for good things like safety and security within my home can lead. Uh, you take that down the wrong rabbit trail and look where it could go. How about a, a good desire for financial security, right? It's not, it's not bad to have wealth. But desiring, having an over-desire for wealth can lead you down a lot of different places. It's like a fishing lure, right? For those of you who have never gone fishing, one of my favorite things, pastimes as a kid, there's nothing wrong with a large-mouthed bass liking shiny objects. 
And if there, there's something called a spinner with a treble hook at the back that largemouth basses just love. You toss it out there, and there's this bright, shiny object, which looks like a minnow. And the largemouth bass goes after what looks like a minnow, and ultimately he finds himself stuck on a treble hook, and he is pulled in. And what, does it, what happens? Tragic consequences. Dinner. D.A. Carson says this. That's what the devil does. He knows what we want in our fallenness. He drops things down in front of us, and because what we want is so often selfish or short-term or greedy or prideful, we're enticed, and we are dragged away. I love D.A. Carson. If you've ever heard him, this next phrase, he says, it kind of shocks me. He says, we're snookered. We're snookered. We take the bait. We're dragged away because of what we are. To change the image, James says these desires, these lures can lead us to sin. And sin grows and leads us to death. And this is where we go wrong, where we suffer. Our longings for comfort, our longings for escape, our longings for explanation, our longings for relational closeness, all these things can lead us to temptation. And if we give in to temptation, it can draw us away from God and ultimately lead us to decisions that are damaging for our soul or even decisions that can even be deadly. The alternative the alternative when we suffer is to count on God's goodness. Thank God for verses 16, 17, and 18. Follow along. James says, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father. Can you just imagine this? Just Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no changing in God. Of His own will we be brought forth by the word of truth that we will be like a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So here's what we can absolutely count on. Even in the midst of your suffering, God is good. Say it. God is good. He's good. Even in the midst, hear this. Some of you don't hear it. Even in the midst of your suffering, your pain, your trials, your temptations, in the midst of that, in the midst of your loneliness, in the midst of your being enticed, in all of that, you need to come back to the anchor. God is good. He's good all the time and all the time God is good God's heart towards you is generous we saw that with wisdom right in the midst of suffering when you don't know what to do James says ask don't be double-minded ask though and he'll be generous he loves to shower us with good gifts in fact every 
every single good thing you have in your life is because God is good. Not because you are, but because God is good. Never doubt God's goodness, especially, friends, in the midst of suffering. You know there are a lot of things that change. The weather changes. The length of days change, right? Right now we're in the middle of the, of the winter and we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. It could be sub-zero Arctic weathers. It could be uh, 75 and we're wearing shorts tomorrow. Welcome to Chicago. If you don't like the weather, stick around for an hour. It's going to change. We're in a period right now of just darkness and it seems like depression in the winter. I hate winter. What are we doing here? The darkness. I know. We can have snow. I know. You can have snow when in the summer somewhere else. But here, hear this. This will change. The circumstances will change. A lot of things change, but some things will never change. For instance, the North Star will never change. No matter where you are, if you can find the North Star in the sky, you can navigate by it. Because it will always be in the same place. And James says that when we go through life, a lot of things are going to change. Our circumstances are going to change day by day, moment by moment, season by season. And people around you are going to change. You're going to go, I used to be able to count on you. And it's like, oh, seasons change. I'm changing. Everything is going to change. Almost everything changes. But one thing will never change. Never. God's goodness towards us will never change. We can navigate our lives by it. He is stable. He is rock solid. He is good. And he has never had a bad day. And the ultimate proof, according to James, that God is good and that he is willing to give us good and perfect gifts is the fact that he has actually saved us. He could have condemned us. He had every reason to, didn't he? He had every reason to condemn you. Instead, what did he do? He sent his son to save us so that you and I can be spiritually reborn. And if you want the ultimate evidence of God's goodness, look to the cross. Where love and mercy flowed down. There's no greater proof of His goodness than this. So when you are going through a hard time, never allow it to push you away from God. God is not tempting you. God is good. Don't allow the trial to become a temptation that pulls you away, entices you to another direction. Don't blame God. God is good. He is generous, and He is the author of all that is good in your life. So that's what not to do when you suffer. And probably, honestly, one of the biggest things that we need to remember 
when our life is an absolute mess and you don't know up from down, the thing to remember and you need to repeat to yourself, God is good. God is good. But it's also important to remember what to do. When we suffer, God gives, James gives us two things that we should do instead of blaming God. Each one is extremely practical. And each one we can do when we go through suffering. And here's the two things. The first one is we need to remember who we are in Jesus. That's the first thing. Verses 9 and 11, 9, 10, 11. And this can be confusing, but you've got to understand the context of what is going on here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich is to boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he's going to pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fail, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. There's a lot in these verses. Uh, this could be like a whole nother sermon. And at first it doesn't, if you look at it, you're going, okay, there's a lot of fading and death in this picture. It doesn't feel too comforting. If you're lowly, boast in your exaltation, what's he talking about? If, if you're rich, Boast in your humiliation? What in the world is he referring to? And I, what I think James is doing here is he is referring to two different kinds of Christians here. Within our church, within the body of Christ universally, there are rich, right? There are poor. And James has the same underlying message for both the rich and the poor. He is saying, friend, do not base your identity on your circumstances. Do not base, write it down, do not base your identity on your circumstances. So often happens, doesn't it? You get caught up in this circumstance, this suffering, this trial, and what happens? You develop a whole mentality, a whole identity around that. This is who I am. I'm divorced. I'm lonely. I'm broke. I'm rich. I'm, I'm constantly beating against this to get that. This is who I am. And James is saying, don't base your identity on your circumstances. In fact, if you are poor, that is not the truest thing about you. If you are rich, that is not the truest thing about you. If you are married, that is not the truest thing about you. If you are single, that is not the truest thing about you. If you are childless and barren, that is not the truest thing about you. If you got a slew of kids, that is not the truest thing about you. Doug Moo, in his uh, commentary, said, To the poor believer, 
tempted to feel insignificant and powerless because the world judges a person on the basis of their money and status. James says, take pride in your exalted status in the spiritual realm as one seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That is great news. You're poor? You're seated with Christ. That's where your identity is found. To the rich believer, Doug says, tempted to think too much of himself because the world holds him in high esteem, James says, take pride not in your money or in your social position, things that are doomed all too soon to fade away forever. But paradoxically, in your humble status as a person who identifies with one who was despised and rejected by the world. The point of this passage, according to Doug Moo, is then that Christians must evaluate themselves by their spiritual and not material standards. And I am willing to go not just by, you're to evaluate by your spiritual and not your relational, your spiritual and not your marital, your you fill in the blank. The, the standard that you are to judge yourself, to evaluate yourself, is your place in Christ Jesus. So, the friends, the truest thing and the most important thing about you has nothing, has nothing, zip zero, not nothing, nothing to do with your success or to do with your suffering. The truest and most important thing about you cannot be taken away ever. It's that you are in Christ Jesus. God is for you. You are his child. If things are going well, don't get your identity from your success, but your status as his child. If things are not going well, don't get your identity from your suffering but from the fact that God has promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always with you. And when you suffer, even when you are not suffering, remember who you are in Christ Jesus. Remember that. That is the most important thing. Do not forget that. And it sounds easy, doesn't it? But it only happens when we take our eyes off of our circumstances. And we fix our eyes on God. That's the only way it can happen. The most important thing about us is not our immediate right here kind of circumstances. And it might even be kind of concentric circles of, okay, this happened 10 years ago, or this happened 20 years ago, or 40 years ago, and it still identifies, I identify with that, and that's where I get my identity. That is not the most important thing, the most important thing is not these immediate circumstances. Because as you know, your circumstances are going to change. The most important thing that will never change if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is that you are His. And that He is for you. Not just today but forever. But here's the, the second thing that we need to remember in the midst of suffering. 
We need to remember His purposes for us. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man, unless you're reading King James, then it's blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life. Which God has promised to those who love him. Last week we looked at one of the reasons that we should consider it joy when we experience trials. The reason is that suffering produces maturity in our lives. And when we learn to stand up underneath a trial, something happens. Something happens in us. Our very character changes. God goes to work in us and we become completely different people than we were weeks or days or moments before. Something happens. God is more committed, like I said last week, God is more committed to your character, as the saying goes, than he is to your comfort. But here James gives us another benefit of suffering. After we have suffered, and right now some of you are going, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I get it. But after you have suffered, we will receive the ultimate reward, and it will not be in this lifetime. We will receive the crown of life. He's saying here the same thing that Paul said in another place. For I consider my sufferings in this present time. They're not worth compared to the, that future glory that is going to be revealed to us. Man, this, this is nothing in comparison to that. So the call is to fix your eyes on Christ. Lift your eyes up out of your circumstances out of your sufferings, out of your trials, so that you are not tempted to blame God or wallow. Lift your eyes up, church, and fix them on Christ. When we respond to trials with perseverance, you will be blessed. God's purpose for us is that we will stand up underneath this trial, and we will receive a reward that has been promised. He's good to his word. He will not break his promises. Stand up underneath. Keep your eyes fixed on me. And in the end, you'll receive the crown of life. You can kind of look at this trial and test kind of stuff as a a divinely given homework in which we we are working out the truths God has taught us in his word for it is through this exercise it is through this exercise of working it out that we progress in our knowledge and we grow in our spiritual stature and we come more and more and more like Christ. If I told you this morning when you arrived, listen, here's the deal. 
I want you, in your Sunday best, to kind of run through deep and sloppy mud. And I want you to willingly be shocked with electricity. You get it? I want you to endure all kinds of crazy hardships and trials. You're going to do this, that, and the other thing. You're going to get sloppy. And by the time you get out, you are going to be a total mess. Your body is going to be hurting. You're going to be pushing through. A few years ago, some women that I know did this. Do you remember, Katie? What if I told you that if you ran through the mud and over obstacles and underneath live wires and did all these different things, and at the end of the course, you are going to receive a medal for competing in a tough muddle. Or dirty girls. Was that what it was called? Yeah, that's something we don't want to repeat in church. But if you knew that there was a blessing, a crown, a, a reward in the end, you might think about it. All of a sudden, the mud and the electrical live shocks and the trials have a purpose in this life. If you knew you had to go through life, through all the nasty things that life has to throw at you, for no reason at all, not knowing why stuff happens, you would have to wonder, what is the purpose of all this? But if you knew at the end of the race, you'd reach the finish line. And I kind of have it in my mind's eye. On that day, you stand before God and you kind of look before, behind and you see throngs of people waiting in line. And in that moment, God says, don't worry about it. We've got eternity. Come here. Put up on my lap for a moment. And looking longingly into his eyes, and God says, well done. Well done, Paul. Well done, Abby. Well done, Laura. Well done, Steve. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I've got something for you. I promised it. It's a crown of life. And wrapped up in this crown of life is eternity with me. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more depression. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more miscarriages. There'll be no more loneliness. Quite the opposite. I'm going to fill it with love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness. You are going to enjoy my presence for eternity. And yes, you know what? In this new earth, there is going to be places for the Phillips family. They can enjoy my presence in the mountains of Colorado. 
Paul, you get to stay warm down in Florida, maybe Tennessee in the moderate, maybe in North Carolina area. You get to enjoy that, but you're, that's not the goal. The crown of life is a gift from me for you to continue enjoying for eternity. James gives us an important lesson. And like CPR, I hope that you never have to, ever have to need it. But the reality is, friends, in this life, there will be troubles. There will. And because we're going to suffer, we need to learn how to suffer well in front of a watching world. Not for their sake, primarily, but for our steadfastness with God. And this watching world will say, what is going on? You should give up. This makes no sense. And we can only give the explanation, but God is good. Even in the midst of my suffering, my pain, my loneliness, my hurt, God is good. So how do we suffer? We don't blame God when we suffer. Instead, we remember who we are in Christ Jesus. And we remember His purposes for us. We can't avoid it, but we can learn how to suffer with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that crown of life that awaits us for when we trust in Christ Jesus. And we persevere all the way through. Friends, may we all learn how to suffer in this way. Amen?